India. We begin with a group of people all searching for transcendence in their own way. Now we've changed some of the names to protect their identity. Snap Judgment's own Adiza Egan spoke to writer Scott Kearney, and he's got the story. So I took this summer job leading these uh, students through North India. We're going to go to all the holy sites, starting in Delhi, uh, going to uh, Varanasi, then on to Bodh Gaya, which is where the Buddha attained enlightenment about 2,800 years ago. I was in charge of sort of the day-to-day logistics, you know, organizing travel plans, getting the students to and from classes. And on this program, the highlight was this seven-day silent meditation retreat in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And in that, we would be examining sort of the nature of enlightenment and the fact of our own mortality. Among my students, I had 12. The best, the brightest, the prettiest, the the most put-together one was this woman named Emily O'Connor. Emily O'Connor was 21 years old, beautiful, driven. She had studied yoga for years. She was a debutante. Before she came to India, she dyed her hair brown uh, from blonde because she wanted to fit in and sort of feel one with the culture. Uh, She was always the student that you could go to and sort of know was centered. And, you know, I could rely on her to, to also look after other students and be sure they weren't getting themselves into trouble in a very challenging country to travel in. And on the last day of the retreat, there was a delay caused by a train derailing right outside of Bodh Gaya. And we had to stay an extra night. And on this night, it's three in the morning and I'm lying in my bed under a mosquito net, uh, you know, sound asleep. And all of a sudden, this student named Frank uh, runs into my room and says, oh my God, Emily's on the ground outside and she's not breathing. I run out of this sort of chamber, and she's, like, right outside my doorstep. And I I see her. She's lying. She's being rolled over by one of the other directors of the program. Uh, They're they're fastening sort of a clavicle, you know, neck brace on her. But it's clear she's not breathing. She has this really large bruise under her eye. Um, You know, I don't just don't believe it's happening. Here is one of my students dead. Just hours before, while everyone was sleeping, Emily snuck out of her bed and climbed onto the roof. There, she tied a scarf over her brown hair, wrote some words down in her journal, right before she jumped to her death. You know, she fell from this this height and that roof. Was it this one or that one? She, she, she probably came from here, is my guess. You know, for the next few hours, we're, we're sort of recording all of the information that we can, you know, we take a video of the scene. Um, when I found her, I was coming around this corner here on this path. Wow. Uh, all right. These are the steps that she likely took. I think this is actually the only way out. Uh, and uh, and we go through her stuff, and I find her journal, and I read it, and and the last page, written probably just hours before she took her own life was this message that she believed that she was a bodhisattva, uh, essentially just on the verge of enlightenment. And she said that all she had to do was take her own life 
to achieve this next state of enlightenment. March 10th, 2006. I am different from others in the sense that I have obviously lived very many previous lives and have done a lot of meditation and have good karma. I am ready to respect life's pleasures. I am a bodhisattva. I am not attached to death anymore. She took her own life because she believed she was on the verge of greatness, of something superhuman, something beautiful. And that, to me, was devastating. This wasn't a suicide because of depression or unhappiness. This seems like almost psychosis that was happening. And in that moment, I felt angry at her. You know, angry at the idea of enlightenment, giving her these this this promise of bliss you know it ended in death she did this out of compassion that she did this out of out of some misguided sense of of buddhist theology we are clearly out of our depth scott stayed with emily's body pouring ice on her in the 100 degree heat i sat next to her body for 3 days you know trying to stave off uh, you know decomposition Scott was the only director in the program who could strategize with the local cops in Hindi on how to get Emily's body from Bodhgaya back to her family in the States. Then, when he got back home, he pulled out his notes from Emily's journal, and he read that last passage over and over. After I read her journal, I wondered how common is this? How common is it when you're on a meditation retreat or, or on a spiritual journey that you start to believe these grandiose ideas? Or how often is it that, that, that people end up in a mental asylum or crazy or dead after these things? And so I began investigating, began looking for other instances. And, and I collected journals and writings of people who had died on meditation retreats. Uh, I collected a journal of a guy who jumped off a monastery in Kathmandu. I followed the the story of this guy named uh, Jonathan Spolin, who disappeared in Rishikesh. And then I found a guy named Ian Thorson, who was pursuing meditation in the deserts of Arizona. He believed that he could attain wealth and become an angel just through meditation. Instead, he ended up dying in the mountains. Scott started investigating and writing about fake gurus and celebrity meditation leaders. He was on a quest to inform people about the dangers of pursuing enlightenment. And one day, he was sitting at his computer in his house in Long Beach, combing through Reddit. And there was this photo of this dude, bare-chested in, like, in underwear, sitting on a glacier somewhere north of the Arctic Circle with this sort of, like, smug, intense gaze and smile on his face and his name was Wim Hof meet Wim Hof for decades he's trained his mind to help his body withstand the coldest conditions imaginable he set 18 world records and baffled countless scientists with his ability to stay warm is it hot out here? Or is it just me? Wim has what he calls a mental thermostat. I don't feel the cold right now. Are you Wim Hof? He sort of had this like alpha male Chuck Norris sort of thing going on. Uh, He said that he was able to teach the 
power of consciously controlling your body temperature in these extreme environments. Wim Hof basically said you could be Superman. He also said that you could cure your sicknesses with just the power of your mind. I just smelled charlatan from, like, across the internet. This looked like And I figured that this could be dangerous, too, because if you're telling people that you can cure your sickness with the power of your mind, you might not get the medical treatment you need. Or if he says that you can go sit on an iceberg and be warm, that you could freeze to death. It seemed so obvious to me that that this Wim Hof fellow was going to get people killed. I didn't want him to create more Emily's. At that point, Wim Hof was sort of a rising icon, but he hadn't achieved global superstardom. But I saw that as a potential. So I wanted to debunk him before he got famous. But to really evaluate Wim Hof, Scott had to experience his method firsthand. So he went to Poland to take one of his intensive seven-day trainings. So I get off the plane, and the first person I meet is Wim Hof. And he is this sort of short, uh, older man with a big, bulbous red nose and a green pointy hat that made him look like a life-size garden gnome. And he smells like terrible and dresses like haphazardly, like whatever was nearby him that looked like clothing he would just put on. And my first thoughts are like, okay, so you're Superman? Uh, But he also greets me with this really warm smile and it's like, oh, we're going to have a great weekend. We're going to win the war on bacteria. People are going to give me a Nobel Prize and I am the best. And and we're we're rewriting all the science books. And he's saying all this stuff that just sounds like gobbledygook or spiritual mumbo jumbo, like universal love is going to come and save the day. And I'm like, oh my God, this guy is even worse than I thought. I mean, he's a nut. Nevertheless, Scott climbs into Wim's rickety white van. They drive through the snow to the outskirts of the city. Finally, they reach Wim Hof's camp. I throw my bags down in this sort of dilapidated farmhouse. I'm on the second floor, and I look out the window, and there's this dude sitting out there, his black hair, a beard, sort of pretty cut muscles, uh, in his black underwear, throwing snow on his chest, and there's steam coming off of him. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? Like, <laughs> A, why would you do that? And B, why is there steam? And my feeling is like, I do not want to do that. And the, the guy standing next to me is a, a Latvian martial artist. He looks out there, he's like, oh, I can't wait. And he runs outside to stand in the snow too. And I'm like, I'm just going to be sitting in this house for a week with crazy people. You know, later that night, I'm hanging out with Wim and we're playing a game of chess. We set up the pieces and, and you know, he knows that I'm there to debunk him. He's well aware of my intentions, but he also has faith that he's got something legit to share. And Wim and I are sitting across from each other in front of this wooden chess set. And, you know, I, I, I played chess since I was in high school. And, and Wim is sort of this, you know, autodidactic guy who can seem to pick up anything. And we're playing the game. And at first he does these, like, like really good defensive moves we play for probably a half an hour until he makes a mistake and I crush him thank you God and after I I beat him in chess he says you know you will try this tomorrow you will try these methods and it's also sort of like all right, 
I gave you one. Now you give me one, Scott. You know, you can you you will do this program with me. And I'm like, yeah, of course I'll do it. You know, you're you're obviously a a, a fallible dude. Uh, you know, <laughs> and but yet despite these failings, you know, there I could sense there's something really interesting here. And we actually get into our sleeping bags, and he teaches us this his breathing method. The Wim Hof method really only has two parts to it, right? Which is breathing and then cold exposure. And the breathing is essentially, uh, you know, 30 deep, fast breaths. It sounds a little bit like this, like... (sighs) You get dizzy and lightheaded and your fingers tingle. And you do that, and then at the end of it, you exhale. You just go... And let all the air out of your lungs and you hold your breath. And I knew I could hold my breath for about 30 seconds. And I start doing his method. And within one round, I was holding my breath for like a minute, 20 seconds. And after three or four rounds, I was holding my breath for two, two and a half minutes at a time. And this is with empty lungs. And I thought that was really cool. After the breathing, they dropped down to the floor for push-ups. And Scott just busted out 40 right there. He was excited. Then it was time for the second and most dreaded part of Wim Hof's method, cold exposure. Which I was not excited about. And Wim rightfully also said, it's going to be painful, and, and but this is a week-long process. And true to its word, we go outside, and it feels like I'm walking on hot coals, like excruciatingly painful. And Wim just said, you stand here in the snow for five minutes, and, and then you can go warm up. And... Man, that was the longest five minutes of my life. All of the veins in my in my feet clenched closed like they had never been used before. And Wim looked at me and was like, this is the first time. This is, this is what happens. And uh, tomorrow it will be better. And I was in it. I was in it to try it. Over the next couple of days, Scott bathed in icy streams. He could now stand in the snow for five minutes then 10 minutes, then 20. After a few days, the pain was gone. And at the end of the week, Scott and the other attendees approached Mount Snezka, a skiing mountain near the old dilapidated farmhouse. Scott and the others started on the mountain in just a bathing suit and some shoes, in a foot of fresh snow. And the the hair on my legs gets like coated in little tiny snowballs. Uh, But I was on that mountain at 2 degrees Fahrenheit for 8 hours, and I was never cold. I was hot the whole way up to the top. You know, meanwhile, skiers are coming down in their sort of jumpsuits, all turning around being like, oh my God, who are these people who are definitely going to die any minute from now? And yet my experience was euphoria. I climbed up a mountain, 8 hours, bare-chested and shorts in the cold, and felt warm, and that was seemingly miraculous. And yet there was also this... Other thing was like, did I push myself to a point where I could have killed myself? And, and I, I didn't actually have the answer to that. You know, beyond the grandiose talk of universal love, beyond the grandiose talk of superhuman powers, there's something earnest about whim, which is alluring. And, and I, you know, I, I go along with it. As I was learning to do the Wim Hof method after I I met him, I I kept on doing this 15-minute breathing meditation every morning and uh, push-up cycles and taking cold showers every day. When I go on runs in the middle of the winter, I I go just in a bathing suit and shoes and started putting my body through the ropes. 
But I wanted a big challenge, right? I wanted something that was bigger than climbing up that mountain in Poland. I, and I learned that Wim was planning to climb Mount Kilimanjaro uh, at the beginning of the year. He was going to do it shirtless, and he was going to do it fast. Normally, it takes people about five days to safely climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And they do it in two to three mile stages. So what our plan was, was drastically faster. than Wim Hof's plan was to climb the mountain in somewhere between 30 and 40 hours, and maybe even beat the record for fastest group ascent. Both American and Dutch researchers advised against it. They estimated the entire group could die of acute mountain sickness. But Scott felt that with the Wim Hof method, it wouldn't be a problem. I wanted a challenge that would floor me, that would honestly defy death. Because if I defied death, if I defied what everyone said was going to kill me, well, wouldn't that show that this method works? I am the guy who didn't believe in this. And if I can go from a radical unbeliever into this to somebody who not only believes, but then to go out to the world and say, hey, there is something here. Well, that's profound. Scott hops on a plane and makes his way to Tanzania meet Wim Hof and a couple other devotees. So here we are at the base of Kilimanjaro, and it's tropical. This is like broadleaf plants, you know, hot environment. And so the idea of going shirtless at that point was really not a big deal. And uh, there's a lot of local press there. And Wim uh, is standing in front of them saying, we are here together. We will all have buddies. We will be safe. And, it, and there will be no ego on this trip. And, and he pauses and says, there is no ego. Only we go. After about a full day of climbing, they hit their first stop. They ate, and they carried on in the rain. That night, they rested for about four hours before they started again. It got cold. People were putting on jackets. Twenty hours into the ascent, they got to the last staging point, where they all sat down to eat. And Wim's like, no, 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 we didn't come up Kilimanjaro to have lunch. We came to win. We came to do this. And he like he says, no more resting. And then Wim just sort of, when people are, are just sort of like sneering at him, like, no, just give us an hour or something to rest up. We don't care about the record. He runs out of the, the hut. He says, like, you, you can come with me or you can stay behind. And... And, you know, the guides actually try to physically block him, but he doesn't care, and he sort of runs up the mountain. And I'm watching him disappear into the distance. He's wearing these bright blue shorts with birds on them and I believe an orange blanket over his shoulders just, you know, climbing up the mountain. People were like, forget this guy. Like, like he, he's not going to push us. We don't need to go put our, our lives at risk for him. Like, this guy's crazy. And as he gets maybe, I don't know, half a mile away, I'm like, damn it, I guess I have to go. (laughs) But I'm pissed at him. I am so angry at Wim Hof because he's not doing the the we-go thing. He is all ego. And so I I just give in. I just protest. I throw on everything I have in my bag. I have like a sweater on and a thermal underwear and like a big puffy green jacket. And this is like my big you to Wim Hof. You know, he sees me coming and he sort of waits and I say, Wim, wait up. And he turns to me and says, don't you challenge me, Scott Carney. And, you know, we're going to do this. And, and, I, and I said, look, Wim, I don't care about the record, but how do I know you're not going to just leave me on the mountain to die if I get into trouble? And somehow this message seems to, like, I don't know, resonate with him. And he's like, 
I won't leave you. And then so Wim, I, and then one other guy start climbing up the mountain, even though the guides are shouting at us not to. And, and I just watch his feet, and we climb up this just incredibly steep, rocky slope. And, and, I, and I, there's this moment where he's, he's in front of me, and I see his foot just slip a little bit and almost have to, like, put his hand down to catch himself. And I'm like, Wim Hof isn't, like, God. He's not superhuman. I'm not here on this mountain because of Wim. I've been on this six-year journey because of me, because I wanted this challenge. And then all of a sudden this protest that I put on, this like sort of state puff marshmallow man suit, just seemed ridiculous, and I sort of stripped it down so I was bare-chested again. At this altitude, everything goes dim. Scott's vision begins to narrow, and he starts to feel faint. So I, I go back into the breathing method, and I just... <sighs> I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I focus on that, and, and then when I do that, the world brightens up again. Well, we're looking up at the last ascent, and I think this is a place called Jamaica Rocks. Um, it's sort of this wash of rubble, probably the hardest part of the ascent. And, you know, we're looking up, and, I, you know, here I am shirtless with wind howling around us. It's, it's uh, around negative 30 with wind chill. And Wim sort of nods at us and says, I, I think Gilman's point is enough. And it was what we were all thinking. Uh, you know, we're, we're fighting for breath. You know, the, the, the air is, is quite thin, and, and we're using the breathing method, which helps a lot. But, you know, there are still limits, and we're looking up, and it's howling. And, and, and it, even though we sort of look just straight up vertically, and it just looks like I'm going up a cliff, um, you know, if you just look down at your feet, one at a time, one at a time, and then... You know, I, I don't even, like, really realize it, but then I'm standing on the top of this mountain, and and I'm looking down the other side at this ice field, right? That, that sort of this glacier that goes steeply down the other side. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm here. And I, and I breathe in that air, that sort of crisp, cold, pure mountain air, and I felt this connection to the world around me because, you know, in a way, the, the, the mountain let us get up there. That we, we didn't get to the summit of Kilimanjaro. We only made it to Gilman's Point, which is, you know, a, a hundred, a, two or three hundred meters shy of the true summit. But the point where you can go up the mountain and look down the other side. As everybody took one last picture of themselves on top of Mount Kilimanjaro, Scott looked down at his watch and realized they would beat their goal. And, you know, I looked back at, at what we could have done. You know, Uhuru was just around the rim of this volcano uh, on the other side of the, the caldera. You could almost see it through, through the snow and haze. And, and I knew that I wouldn't make it there. I, I wasn't trying to push myself past that point of no return. Whereas Emily, you know embraced it, right? She embraced the idea of death as a new beginning for, for something. And that's not what I want. You know, the reason we turned back at Gilman's point is because I wasn't sure that I'd be able to make it. And I'm not curious at this point about what's on the other side of death's threshold. Uh, I want to be on this side for as long as I can. Thank you, Scott Carney, for your story. I'm going to stick around here at sea level 
get all that running around in the snow and your tidy whities Listeners, please note, these methods are dangerous for real. No joke. According to Scott, four people have died using the Wim Hof breathing method while free diving underwater. Find out more about this world. Scott Carney's book, The Enlightenment Trap, is out now. We'll have links to that and Scott's other works at snapjudgment.org. Original score on this story was by David Last. The piece was produced by Adiza Egan. <laughs>